listening to the Between Two Paddles podcast, brought to you by The Lake & Co., where we believe we're only as good as the company we keep. Lake & Co. is a company comprised of three very different entities, Lake Time Magazine, Lake Bride Magazine, and The Lake & Co. Shop. Lake & Co. is inspired by and celebrates the stories of people doing exceptional things in the North, local, authentic, and inspired. We are an independent, bootstrapped, community-driven, women-owned company built on hard work, enthusiasm, and a whole lot of grit. We are Northerners. Subscribe to Between Two Paddles via iTunes now to continue hearing the stories of these folks. You might just be amazed. We always are. I've seen people drop their basket as I drive by, and I'm like, you know, do I think you're just walking around putting them in your hat? Or, <laughs> like, I, I know what you're doing. You're not just walking around. So, um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. But that that kind of falls into the secrecy stuff. It's, it's It can get pretty ridiculous. <laughs> it's spring here in the Northland, and to many people, that means morel season. Morels are a type of mushroom that grow up out of the ground rather than out of a decaying tree and are usually around a few inches tall with a wrinkly cap. They inspire possibly the most secretive culture of any mushroom species gathering. And there's a few reasons that they're so coveted. They're very difficult to cultivate, so one of the only ways to get them is to find them in the woods. But sometimes you'll find them in the grocery store selling for over $20 a pound. And many folks argue that they're just the best tasting mushroom out there, not to mention their high antioxidant levels and other health benefits. People go to crazy lengths to protect their mushroom patches from other foragers. I have good friends who've dropped to the ground and crawled away at the possibility of being sighted by someone else looking for morels. I found morels out in the woods a few times, and every time I do, I'm shocked and excited It's like finding a tiny trove of treasure. And part of the excitement is because your only chance of finding them is at a specific time of year, spring. Their presence is fleeting. The other day, I went on my own hunt for morels, which turned into a three-hour-long bushwhack, knee-deep through the tamarack swamp. I didn't find any morels. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way to do this. And there's got to be somebody who will actually talk to me about how to find them and maybe even take me to them without being so secretive and exclusive. And this is where Matt Brewer comes in. My name is Matt Brewer. I heard of Matt through a friend of mine who recommended that if I wanted to find morels, I better contact one of the best mushroom hunters and guides in the state. Matt works at North Country Guide Service out of the Bemidji area. I have been guiding since 2002, and we guide for everything from all species of fish to wild edibles to bears, grouse, geese. 
and Morell's. With over 15 years of guiding experience, he spent a lot of time in the woods. He says the sheer number of hours he spent outside, coupled with the fact that some of the other things he hunts live in the same kind of habitat, is the reason he stumbled on so many morel picking spots, and that he's willing to share them. I met up with Matt back in the woods and asked him to explain where we were, completely expecting him to not really give an answer. I'm not worried about this area. Like We are kind of in the heart of the Chippewa National Forest, which is gigantic. I mean, you're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of public land, and we're, we're tucked way back in here. Um, anyone can get to these areas, but, uh, you know, to really be able to figure out large honey holes or, or really good spots, you know, you, you can't just drive down the gravel road and stop and get out. Um, you can do that and pick a few here and there, but you're never going to get into the large piles of them. But uh, the Chippewa National Forest is probably one of the better areas for the black morel, which is what we're looking for today. Specifically the black morel, because there's a few different kinds. So one cool thing we have here in northern Minnesota is we have the black morel. So I always find it interesting, you know, if, if we post a picture of some clients with a bunch of black morels or or I'll post a picture with just a beautiful black morel that I throw on Instagram or something. Um, you get a lot of Southerners, like, you know, Indiana is a large morel state, and, and uh, Iowa, obviously, places like that, Wisconsin. Um, you know, they'll sometimes question, like, that's not a morel. Morels are yellow. Um, but for those of us who grew up up here and, and have hunted morels up here our whole lives, for us, the yellow morel is kind of the mysterious one. So it's kind of interesting, you know, you've got all the different subspecies and, um, you know, they every year it seems like they keep adding on, like uh, even the black morel is broken down into a bunch of different subspecies um, and the yellow morel is broken into different subspecies and then you've got all the, the false morels and the verpas and all the things that, uh, that look like the, them and and I just think it's so cool how it's becoming so popular and every year you're learning more and more about it and uh, it's it's turning out that they're a lot more complex than, uh, you know, it used to be the yellow morels are found on, under a dead elm and that's a yellow morel and that's all there is to it. And a black morel is found in, you know, 12 to 15 year old poplars and that's a black morel and that's all there is to it. Well, now they're finding there's there's a lot more to it than those those simple facts or thoughts. We'll talk more about those false morels and identification later on. But going back to the fact that morels first pop up in spring, there are many stories about spring indicators to look for that will tell you it's time to go hunt for morels. I mean, there's all these old wives' tales that just simply and scientifically are not true. Um, But you hear things like when the cottonwood's falling, um, it's time to go after morels, or uh, what's the one? When the buds on the trees are as big as a squirrel's ear, I, I think is, is how ever, it goes. Have you ever heard um, when the cow slips and the bull rushes? Yeah, the, yeah, that's another one. Or uh, when the lilacs bloom. Um, and that one I've found to be relatively true. I mean, morel season always overlaps with, uh, with the lilacs blooming. And I've got a ton of lilacs in my yard, so um, so I've noticed that there is a correlation there. But 
but it, when it comes down to it, it's soil temperature. Um, and if you want to get scientific about it, you need to go out and take soil temp readings. And once you find the ideal soil temperature, it's time to go. Or you just do what we do and you take the amount of time that you have. If you have an opening in the schedule and you think there might be morels, you go. And then once you start finding them, then you know it's time. <laughs> so there you go. Just go when it works for you or when the lilacs bloom. Or, if you want to get scientific about it, when the soil temperature gets above 45 degrees. But Matt says you don't need a thermometer to tell you when the soil is warming. Just look to the other plants who are indicators of this seasonal change. I've got a patch of leeks in my woods, and once, you know, once the leaves are up on those, um, then I know we're getting close. And then once some of the other things start to pop up, like trilliums and, and some of the undergrowth, starts to show itself then I know I know the soil temp is probably about right and it's time to start looking. So where do you look for these elusive little fungi? So the black morel is typically associated with aspen. Um, there, there are several trees I guess aspen, uh, poplar which is part of the aspen family, quaking aspen which is uh, part of the same family um, and then you've got like ash and diamond willow um, those are kind of your prime areas for for black morels and then also clear cuttings or slashings are very popular up here and that's kind of that was something that was really kept on the down low until I think it be, you know morel picking became popular and people started noticing a car parked at a clear cut with two guys walking with a basket or you know uh, an older woman she'd be hiding a basket as you drive by and people kind of figured out oh they must be picking mushrooms, but it's it's really become popular. So clear cuts or slashings, um, you get that disturbance in the soil, and that disturbance in the soil causes causes the mushroom to fruit. Um, because something I think that a lot of people don't understand is there are mushrooms all over underneath us. The mycelium is growing. Uh, you know, it's the largest organism in the world. Um, you know, the, if we look out across the woods here. There's mycelium underneath all of the, the forest floor, um, but you need some sort of disturbance or some reason for the mushroom to pop. And you th if you think of that like, a, uh, like an apple tree, the apple tree is always there, but it only fruits once in a while, right? It only fruits at a certain time of year. So mushrooms are much the same. Um, they need some, some certain thing to for the mycelium to say, okay, you need to fruit into a mushroom and then it'll pop through the forest floor. So, um, and then black morels are different from yellow morels where yellows are uh, more associated with wood de decay. So an elm tree that has Dutch elm disease or, um, or that has become damaged, um, you know, you'll get three, four, five years of fruiting of the yellow morel, whereas black morels, um, they like loamy soil and they're almost always, the mycelium is almost always running from like plant to plant to plant to plant. Um, you know, like a weed or a small piece of brush or a fern or something like that. And the mycelium will run into that. And, um, and then the mushroom will typically fruit from that area. So they're more associated with plant life and soil than than they are wood decay so you can get 20 years out of a black morel spot um, and then you know if someone clear cuts it or they go through and doze it 
you know, he might get two years of really good flushings um, from that from that clear cut, and then you have to wait 15, 12, 15, 17 years before it'll become ideal again, because once the forest gets too mature, um, there's no more, you know, there's no more reason for them to fruit because no more trees are really dying. There's really no disturbance to that forest and you need that, that disturbance. So. Matt and I hit a few different places that day where morels were popping up and all of them had the same characteristics. You know, we're looking at poplar or aspen that is roughly the size of my wrist to my calf. Um, so it's about the perfect size. And if you look in there, you notice all the smaller stuff is starting to fall over. And that's because the larger, uh, more nutrient rich and stronger trees are taking up most of the nutrients and they're, they're kind of bullying the smaller, weaker trees. And then those weaker trees are falling over and their root system is breaking apart and you're getting the flushings because of that. And then you, you add on like deer and turkeys and things like that disturbing the soil. Um, deer trails are phenomenal places to look for morels. So if you, if you find a spot that has morels and you follow a deer trail, a lot of times you'll find mushrooms along the edge of the deer trail because the deer, when they're stomping the ground, they're disturbing that soil and it'll, it'll cause them to fruit. They also say that if you can hear the roughed grouse drumming, you're in a good area. We kicked one up just a little bit ago. Yeah. And earlier today, I kicked a, a hand off of her nest, and she had, she had a clutch of eggs, and there were morels right around her nest. As Matt and I sat just off the dirt road in perfect morel habitat, another old truck rolled by with an older man driving. He didn't stop or even acknowledge us, which was only funny because Matt said he knew the guy and knew that he was also out looking for morels. So I asked Matt to speak a little bit more about this whole secrecy culture of morel hunting. Yeah, it's amazing um, being you know, 16 years of, of guiding fishing, I know all about secrecy. Um, and any fisherman listening to this will know, you know, like a good crappie spot or a good walleye spot or a spot where you can catch really big bluegills consistently. They are extremely um, sacred and secret. While morel hunters and their spots, the secrecy level is like tenfold stronger. Um, I, I don't think you'll ever see someone post a picture of a morel or talk to someone who has a basket of morels and you'll go, oh, where'd you find them? And they'll just freely give you the information. They're more likely to send you on a wild goose chase or tell you the complete opposite direction of town. Like, oh, I got them west of town. Well, then I know they were probably east. So um, it's, it's the most secretive group of outdoorsmen that I know of. But Matt doesn't see it that way. For him, the most important thing is getting people outside, not trying to keep the enjoyment from newcomers. So why is there still this secrecy thing? I don't know, because with thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of private land or of public land, I, 
I'll never understand it because uh, most people are generally lazy, um, just in general terms. Like, I'm lazy sometimes, so most people aren't going to get far off the road. So if I say I was in the Chippewa National Forest, I know that if someone is like, oh, I'm going there, well, I mean, A, good luck. There's, uh, there's so many acres. Um, and B, I don't just hunt the road edge or pull off on a trail and start there. I take, typically I'm going to walk deep in and most people aren't going to do that. So the, the fact that you have access to all these other things, um, and all these other places to go, it kind of is, uh, confusing to me as to why people would be so secretive. I, I understand to a point, you know, like I'm not going to give away my best spots by any means. Um, but giving someone tips or general locations, um, I think we as outdoorsmen need to come together and, and, uh, be able to share some information. Otherwise uh, we're already losing people in the outdoors as a whole. So, um, you know, if, if people are trying to get into it and they're trying to learn and they keep getting denied or given false information, they're just going to give up. And the last thing I want is for that to happen. So uh, I'd rather take people out, show them spots, educate them. And if they want to come back to that spot, I, I'm never going to be angry because that might be the only spot that they've ever known. And if that keeps them outdoors, great. So Matt told me that mushroom hunting has gotten really popular with the younger generation, millennials. This whole contingent of back-to-the-earth, subsistence, health food craze folks. And in my experience, what goes along with that culture is this whole reverence for harvesting. This opinion that the fungus is sacred because it's more closely related to humans than it is to other plants. So the harvesting techniques I've been taught are what seem to be very respectful to the mushrooms. Always cut them with a knife, always carry them around in a basket so their spores can spread, and never harvest all of them. But Matt, as one of very few certified mushroom guides in the state, who has well over a hundred different spots to pick that he goes back to year after year, has a different opinion on harvesting. The whole spore bag, um, use a basket so that the spores can spread and fall out as you're picking, um, is completely a myth because the mushroom itself, it actually doesn't spore out until the end of its life cycle. So, you know, if you're carrying it around and chunks of the mushroom are falling out onto the ground and that little tiny, little tiny pebble that through uh, that went through your mesh bag probably isn't gonna spread enough spores to to make a, a difference so um i go back to the apple tree like if you go to an apple tree you don't you know you don't cut it at the top you just yank it off the tree and it's still gonna grow the next season um same with like plums and things like that and i think of mushrooms the same way like if someone pulls it out of the ground 
so be it. It's you're you're not taking the entire system. There's still there's still the mycelium under the ground. So you're not you're not affecting the actual you know the actual system um, that is the host of everything. So now if you were to go in and and uh, cut a huge chunk of ground out to take you know some mushrooms with you, and then you think you're going to go plant them at home, and and think that's going to work, then then you're affecting the entire system. You know, you take a shovel and you dig through the mycelium and you break it in in that spot. You're affecting that that immediate area, but you're still going to have mushrooms that are going to grow grow around you. And uh, so I'm not I'm not a guy that carries a knife with and um, and with morels it just it just doesn't matter there are some like uh like chicken of the woods and hen of the woods and some of the you know the later mushrooms um i will cut them off because i know that even when i cut them off the rest is going to live and it's still going to be able to spore out but but when we're taking morels we're taking the area that spores the most uh we want to eat that (laughs) so um and and they're not as plentiful as like a 30 pound chunk of of chicken of the woods so so do you ever leave any behind so that they can spore out i i never look at a mushroom and say i'm leaving that one to you know to spread its seed um i might look at one and it's too small um you know where it's not even really worth me taking uh because it's not going to give me a bite even so i'll leave those and if i come back three days later and it's large enough to pick i'm going to pick it um, but I'm sure, you know, A, you'll never find them all. And B, uh, if I leave one, I, I probably won't find it again. The chances of me walking past that exact same spot are, are, are not that likely because I'm hitting so many different areas. But, um, but the, the fact of the matter is you aren't going to find them all. So I'm not worried about them spreading, uh, sporing out and, and spreading because people just are never going to be able to pick them all. Um. I could get a hundred hundred people in an area, and we still won't pick every mushroom in that in that block. So, so there's no worry there, and the whole spore bag and and basket thing is a is a myth. And I'm sure anybody who's trying to sell spore bags is probably upset with me right now. But that's just the way it is. Before you just trust Matt Blind, I want you to know a little bit more about his story, how he got started, and how he got to where he is now having accumulated so many morel spots. I, I started by, kind of by accident. One, one of my best friends when I was really young, um, his father lost his legs in a snowmobile accident and he really enjoyed morels. So when we would go to their cabin, his dad would drop us off and then make us walk and pick morels. And then we'd hop back in the vehicle and then we'd go to the cabin and and that was my first experience with morels. Like, uh, you know, I didn't know what we were doing. Like, okay, we have to go pick these things. And, and then we got to go back to the cabin and we'd eat them and they're delicious. And I, I understood that, but I didn't understand, you know, that it was like, uh, like a cult. Um, and then as I got older, um, the spots that I was looking where I grew up were a lot different than they are when I moved to Bemidji. And one of, actually one of my, um, one of my guides who does all my backup guiding for fishing, I was talking to him about it and saying that I hadn't hunted morels in ages and he he happened to have a good spot and we went out. And then 
after he showed me that spot, I've never been back there again, but I was able to correlate that like, oh, from just from years of hunting and, and hiking and being in the woods, I, w I knew, okay, there's this spot and this spot and this spot and this spot and this spot. They all look exactly like that. So then as you start checking, you know, you kind of rule out, okay, this spot produced, this one didn't. And every year we try to add more and more spots. Um, so you're always checking new areas and um, the ecosystem is ever changing. So the trees are always growing. So uh, if a chunk of forest gets too mature and the morel growth in that area is no longer good, I need another spot to replace that spot. And, you know, as things are growing, if something's getting too mature, that means something else is probably just coming into its prime. So it's always a revolving door for us, keeping an eye on what's been clear cut, how long ago something was cut. Um, like we've made notes before, like this spot was cut 10 years ago. We've got two more years to go before we'll even give it a look type of thing. And then we know that once it's in that 15 year range, as long as uh, the mycelium exists, then uh, we're probably going to do well in that area. So it's just getting outside. I mean, the more time you spend outdoors, the more spots you're going to have. And there really aren't a lot of things to do in the spring aside from um, shed hunting or turkey hunting or morel picking or just getting outside and hiking. And if you do any of those things in northern Minnesota, chances are you're going to come across a morel spot. So even when we're turkey hunting, I'll I'll find a morel and I'll be like, okay, I'm coming back here just to pick morels, not to hunt. Or, uh, or if we're shed hunting and I, uh, we happen to go through a mature forest and all of a sudden we come upon a patch of young aspen, I'll make mental note, like, I need to come back here during, during morel season. So we're just outside a lot. That's how, <laughs> that's how we've accumulated so many spots. Um, and then I've got a pretty good team under me and a lot of friends that, um, you know, that we all like to share information and uh, some of them work for me, so they're obligated, but um, but a lot of us like to share information and, and you add spots that way. If you get four or five different people who are all checking different areas, um, you know, we might have a day where we say, okay, nobody hit anything the same. You, you're strictly hitting new stuff today. Uh, chances are someone's going to find something really good, so... If you're like me and you've been wanting to find morels, you've been out and maybe you've found a few, but you just can't seem to figure it out, Matt says he's seen it all, so don't hesitate to take the step and go on a guided trip. I learned more in an hour walking the woods with Matt than I have in hours of online searching and reading. It's, it's hard. I mean, if you have never done it before and you didn't grow up with it or you didn't have someone to show you, um, the easiest way is... To hire someone to show you an area so we get a lot of people like that and you know they'll tell us like I've spent 30 hours in the woods this season and I have not found a morel yet and we get them out of the tr out of the truck and we walk you know 20 feet and there's your first one and then and then I always tell them when they find their first one like stop and look around you and just take in every bit of information you can around you look at the type of tree look at how old it is uh, you know, how big is it in comparison to your wrist or your, or your calf or whatever, or your leg? And, you know, how many trees are in this area? How, how clustered is it? How much leaf litter is on the ground? Just take in all the information you can. And then when you go home with that, 
you know, you might be driving on your way to work and you look out the window and you're like, hey, that spot looks just like that spot. He took me mushroom picking. And people are going to have success doing it on their own that way. But most of the people, honestly, they want, they have that yearning to figure it out on their own. But they just need that little bit of guidance. So they come out with us and they, you know, they figure it out. And then they can take that information back home with them. And, and they'll send me pictures the next season and they'll be like, look what I did on my own. And, and it's awesome. I love that. If you are going out on your own, and especially if you haven't done it very much, don't let the scare of toxic lookalikes deter you from getting out in the woods. But do your homework on what those look like. There's a list of safe mushrooms and morels are on that list. And I, I think that's kind of interesting because uh, they say there's nothing that looks like a morel, but um, but there are, uh, when you get into the black morels, there are black morels and then there are half free morels, which are exactly like a black morel, except the cap is connected halfway up the stipe or the stem, as opposed to uh, the cap being attached at the bottom of the cap. Um, and then you have verpas, which are, they look very similar, and I have clients pick them all the time and not know. They just think it's a morel, um, but they've got a cottony substance in the center. And then you've got the false morel, which is gyrometra, which doesn't look anything like it. Uh, people call it the brain mushroom or beefsteak. Um, but, but I want people to be aware that there, that there is the half-free morel, which is not a true uh, black morel. And I want people to know about the verpa as well because the verpa is toxic. So um, first timers or people new to it, make sure, uh, I always cut my mushrooms in half to clean them. Uh, I'll cut them in half and then soak them in water before I cook them. Uh, I just want people to know that cutting them in half not only allows me to get the bugs, slugs, or anything dirt out of the middle, but it, al it also allows for people to see that it's hollow and making sure that it's hollow is important, whereas a verpa is going to have uh, a cottony substance in the, in the stem itself. So that's something important to talk about. There's an overwhelming amount of information online that isn't always correct. But Matt has some resource recommendations. There are a ton of books. Um, I, I try not to believe anything online anymore. Um, I've read articles in outdoor magazines or you know, blogs or things like that where people, you know, they go out mushroom hunting three or four times and now they're an expert and they'll write about it and I read it and I'm like, no, no, you cannot give this to the masses. Um, so I try not to trust the inter internet too much, but when you get into books, um, you know, we, the mushroom world lost Gary Linkoff uh, this year and he was kind of one of the, the gods when it came to mushrooms and information on mushrooms. And, and Gary has a couple of really good books. So if you look up any books by Gary Linkoff, um, there are a few that I really enjoy. All the, All the Rain Brings and More is a great one. Um, the North American Guide to, uh, to Wild Mushrooms from the National Audubon Society. That's a, that's a fantastic one. Um, mus mushrooms Demystified, they consider that the Bible of mushrooms. But for someone who just wants to learn, it's not really a good one. Uh, it, it is like the Bible. It's extremely confusing and long. <laughs> so, so that one's a little more for advanced readers uh, or advanced pickers. But some of those, the field, the more field guide, um, 
really picture full books are the ones I would suggest because it, it it's way easier to look at it than read about it and uh, and especially ones that give you several different varieties and angles um, and then you know uh, if you have to do internet research make sure you're doing it from a reputable source um, and a lot of a lot of websites that that give advice on it um, they'll actually cite references at the bottom from different books like mushrooms demystified or uh, they'll give information from Paul Stamlitz or, or Gary Linkoff, people like that, who really know. So um, books are important. My son always jokes around, like, I didn't read him bedtime stories. We looked at mushroom books, and uh, he can identify mushrooms like crazy. And, I mean, from the time he was, like, two years old, he still remembers there's a picture in Mushrooms Demystified of a frog in a mushroom, and he still remembers that, and he's 10 years old now. So it's a... Uh, that tells you what kind of family we are, I guess, but. Thank you to Matt Brewer and North Country Guides. There's nothing like getting to go out in the woods and learn from somebody who's not only extremely educated and experienced, but who also grew up in those woods. And Matt says around 90% of his diet is wild harvested from these forests. He's literally made from the land. If you want to learn more about the guided trips that he offers, head over to northcountryguides.com. They offer two types of morale day trips. One is more educational and information loaded, geared towards getting you a big harvest of morels and teaching you how to get out and do it on your own. The other one is more of a pleasure trip, where you'll go to a morel picking spot and leisurely pick away as Matt cooks up a wild harvested meal that you can add your freshly picked morels to and eat together and hang out as you enjoy the forest. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Between Two Paddles via iTunes. This episode was brought to you by The Lake & Co. with music by Trampled by Turtles and Dr. Turtle. Let me know if you or someone you know has a story to tell. You can email me at kim at Keep telling your stories. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>